What is the greatest celebration you can either imagine or that you've been a part of? What are the kinds of things that come to mind? For some, maybe it's, it's a sporting event. For Stephen, it would be the Detroit Lions actually making it to the Super Bowl <laughs> and, and winning. Could be a, it would be a monumental event, wouldn't it? Yeah, it would be cool. Uh, maybe it's, you know, this week the, the Olympics began. That opening ceremony. Or maybe it's, you know, some other event that you've been a part of. There's something incredibly special about being with a group of people where you're all focused on the same celebration, the same triumph. But there are other kinds of celebrations that we have in our life that um, are not shared quite as much, but are incredibly meaningful. Maybe the greatest celebration you've ever been a part of was your wedding or the birth of a child. Maybe the greatest celebration was a graduation, marking an accomplishment. You see, there's, there's two types of celebrations that we experience. There's ones that we share with everyone else where we're, in a sense, kind of the spectators or, or maybe we're part of a, a team And then there are those that are incredibly intimate and personal because it touches something so deep within us. In this passage of Scripture in Philippians, we have um, some verses that, that tell us a great deal about our amazing God and what He has done for us. But it also points to the day when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And when we hear those words within our culture, within our context, the first thing that comes to mind is judgment. And that is definitely a part of it, where everyone will recognize Jesus Christ for who He says He is and who we believe Him to be. But if we were to be able to look at this passage in the mindset of Paul, Growing up in a Jewish home, being trained as a rabbi and understanding from the Psalms the background of what this is pointing to, we would see that this is pointing to the greatest of all celebrations. Is there judgment? Yes. But there is a party like you have absolutely never conceived. And it was focusing on that celebration that enabled Paul to have joy in the midst of incredible trials. Remember, he's in prison. If you've been with us for the last few weeks, he's in chains, he's in prison. To some degree, he's been forgotten by others, and, and there are only a few people who are coming and, and spending time with him, but he's, he's continuing to do ministry. He's writing letters to the churches that he has visited. He's, he's witnessing to those who are chained to him, the Roman uh, guards, that are there so that all of the Praetorian Guard eventually hear the gospel as they make their rounds being chained to Paul. And he's waiting, not knowing if he's going to be set free or executed. And yet in the midst of that, he's able to have incredible joy because he's able to see what's coming with eyes of faith. Well, let's look a little bit at this, this passage and, and begin to, to break it out and, and see that Jesus Christ himself is our joy. 
he gives us, first of all, an example of how we can experience joy. Because joy comes when life isn't about us, but it's about him. And so he gives us an example, first of all, in verses 5 through um, 9, of overwhelming joy. He tells us, first of all, to have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And that's, that's really important there in verse 5. It's not something that we get, it's something that we've already been given. You have this mind of Christ. You have, if, if you have trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, then He has given His Holy Spirit to live within you, but also He has given you a new mind that you must then choose to exercise, to think like Jesus thought. Who through, excuse me, who though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now, this is incredibly packed with theological truth. Jesus Christ has always been God. He is one with God the Father and with God the Holy Spirit. And yet this God, the creator of the universe chose to humble himself and to step into our brokenness and to become both fully God and fully human so that he could be the one who would stand in the gap for us. Now, we think about what this is like, and and throughout literature, we have glimpses of of, of trying to to grasp this reality. We have things like the stories like the, the prince and the pulper, where the prince, who's the rightful ruler humbles himself and puts on the, the clothes of a poor person so that he can see what life is like amongst his subjects. Jesus does that, but the gap is so much greater than from a prince to a pulper. It is from the God of this universe who stepped into our sinful state out of love for us. And what does it say? Being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus exhibits joy, but he does so in the midst of incredible trial. He lived a life of joy. This is what oftentimes doesn't come through on the two-dimensional print on the page. And sometimes in the movies that we create or the, or the paintings that we try to imagine of what Jesus was like, it is hard to see the overflowing joy that comes out of Jesus Christ. Now, how do I know that he had an attraction to him, a winsomeness that, that drew people to him? Is because that's what you see in the Scripture. Crowds are coming around him because there's something about Jesus that's different than anybody else. And it's not just religious people. It's people who are, uh, you know, that are tax collectors who are ostracized. It's, it's um, prostitutes. It's sinners, as it's, as it's called. Those who have been kind of shut out of religious, polite religious society. They want to go hear Jesus. They want to be in his presence. And when you read through the Gospels, you see not only do they want to do it, but they'll do whatever they can to even just get a glimpse of him or to touch his garment or to climb up into a tree to see him coming because there's something about him that is so attractive. 
And I believe what that is, is his joy. It overflows. And that's why it is so important for us as Christians to live lives of joy so that others see no matter what we're going through, even though we live, as this passage says, in a crooked and perverse or twisted generation, even though our world is falling apart, we're to shine as stars because we have joy knowing what is coming. And the knowing what is coming is not heaven. The knowing what is coming is the crown of Jesus Christ being declared King of Kings. That's what we want to focus on. That's where the joy is. And so we see here Jesus' humility where he chose to voluntarily descend from his rank and dignity in order to rescue us. And he did it to obey the Father and he did it for joy, the joy of drawing us to himself. So how do we follow Jesus' example of joy? Well, I believe what we are to do, first of all, is what it says here in verses 5 and 6, is to have his same mind among ourselves, which means that we abandon our reputation. Man, that's hard to do. Because I want people to be impressed with me. Anybody else want people to be impressed with you, to like you, to think you're significant? Jesus said the path to joy is to set that aside. Let me display your significance. Don't fight for it. Lay aside your reputation. Jesus laid aside his reputation as the king of heaven because it was the will of the Father and because he came to rescue us for the joy that was set before him of bringing people back to God and into his family. We're to have that same attitude. God must be exalted above our reputation. And understand that humility, because really this is what it's talking about. Humility is not thinking of ourselves as insignificant or unworthy, even though in many ways we are. True humility is just not thinking about ourselves. It's just focusing our minds intently on God and others. That's the secret to it. It's not saying, oh, I am just this horrible, worthless person, because guess what? You're not. In fact, you're worth so much that the ultimate price was paid for you. The God of the universe gave his life to rescue you. So don't allow the enemy to take and say and twist things and say, I'm not worth anything. Yes, you are. But we aren't to focus on it or to abandon our reputation and focus our hearts and minds on Christ. Colossians says it this way, set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things of the earth, for we have died and our life is hidden with Christ in God. So we abandon our reputation. Secondly, we are to become a Christ-like servant. He took on the form of a servant. This is why service is what we're called to in the church. It's interesting because from a human standpoint, what we always look for is leadership. And we're looking for leaders to bring transformation. When we look into our governments, when we look at politicians, and and as messed up as that is sometimes, we're looking for leaders. We want people to stand up and, and really make a difference. 
God says the way to make a difference is to be a servant. And what we truly need in the church for it to be transformational is for all of us to become more and more of a servant of God and of one another. That's how God leads is through service. It's it's a paradox, but it's incredibly important. Mark 10, 45 tells us this, for even the Son of Man, Jesus, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. If we're to follow his example, the constant prayer of our heart needs to be, God, how do you want to use me today? How do you want to use me in this circumstance, in this relationship? How do you want to use me in the workplace? How do you want to use me as I'm walking across the square? Every moment, Lord, how can you use my life for your honor and your glory? We serve because it brings joy both to us and it brings pleasure to God because we're choosing to be like him. Thirdly, he calls us to sacrifice our life for his, to lay it down. We want to pray, oh God, be exalted above my life. Be exalted above my health. Be exalted above my success. Be exalted above my career. Be exalted above my relationships. Take first place because that is my desire and that is my joy. To live is Christ and to die is gain comes when we willingly sacrifice our life for his. This is what Jesus tells us in his own words in Mark chapter 8. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. He has to have first place in everything. There's not an easy believism that's presented in the gospel. He tells us to give our all. And the reason he tells us to do that is because that's the only way he can then fill us with joy. As long as I hang on to it, it's like a container. There's only so much capacity. And if I keep all my stuff in the container, there's not going to be room for joy because I'm trying to ask God to cram joy in around everything else I've already packed into my life and my heart. So I have to let him pour it out and say, Lord, I don't want all of this stuff of me. I want you. I want your joy. There's a strangeness to the Christian life. One of the moments that's recorded in the Scripture that is perhaps the most joyful is actually at the stoning of Stephen the deacon. He gives a faithful witness for Christ He gives one of the greatest sermons recorded ever about who Jesus Christ is. And yet, because of his faith and because it has stirred up the anger of the religious leaders, they are determined to stone him. And when they begin to throw the stones, he sees Jesus Christ high and lifted up. He sees him for who he is and he dies with incredible joy because his eyes are able to see the reality of Christ. It seems strange, but when we embrace it by faith, we discover it is absolutely real. 
Betty and John Stam were missionaries to China at the time of the communist revolution. Communists led the Stams out and they said, now you give up this Christ business or you die. And the Stams said, we will not give up Christ. All right, the leaders said, kneel down. And they knelt down. Bend your head over. And they bent their heads over. And John and Betty Stam were beheaded. And yet, it was a moment of fear, certainly, but of great joy because they were able to give their all for Christ. Now, that sounds strange. How can that be joyful? It can because when we choose to give all that we are to God, He fills us with Himself. So there's an example of Christ Jesus that leads to overwhelming joy. But let's look at the expression of ultimate joy. And this is where I want to spend a few minutes and, and I hope to paint a picture for you from the Scripture that changes your understanding and becomes something that you really are eager and excited about. Philippians 2, verse 9. This is the description of the joy that Jesus um, had his, his eyes focused on when he endured the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted Christ and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every creature in heaven, on earth, under the earth, every creature is going to acknowledge that Jesus Christ is God that he is king of kings and lord of lords. So there is a, real, a realization that comes about and there is an act of humbling themselves in, in, and bowing down before him that everyone will do. But there is incredible joy in this celebration because we are called to be joint heirs with Christ. Those who have willingly bowed down to him ahead of time and said, you are my Lord and you are my Savior. I will live for you. This is a moment of incredible celebration. Paul is able to see past his circumstances to this moment. And it is something amazing. Because it is one in which all of creation will join in. Everything that exists. And, and here's the key. We lack joy primarily because of one thing. Spiritual nearsightedness. I become so focused on what is in front of me, I'm not able to see past the problem, past the pain, past the difficulty to see this moment. Paul sees this moment. And let me, just, let me give you some ideas of, of what's happening here. It changed how his attitude towards other people. We see this actually earlier in, in the letter. He sees those who are actually rivals against him, not in a way of envy or jealousy, but because he sees this moment, it changes his perception of others. Look, turn in your Bibles to, to, um, to verse 15 of Philippians chapter 2. 
He says, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry. Excuse me, I think it's chapter 1. But others um, from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, um, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. I choose joy. Because even if their motives are wrong, God can use them because His truth prevails. And it's helping to point people, even, even if it's not even their desire or their motive, it's still pointing people to Christ. And so, being able to see this celebration and what God is going to do changes his attitudes about everything. It's like pregnancy. Now, I, want, I have never been pregnant. I know that is surprising to all of you. And so I am already stepping into waters that, are, that no wise person would dive into. But I'm going to do it anyway. I'm just going to jump in with the sharks, Okay. I've not been pregnant, but I have been with my wife through a number of pregnancies and, and, and seen what she has experienced. Don't worry, I'm not going to do anything. Don't, I'll be, I'll be, I won't go there. Here's the thing. If pregnancy didn't result in a birth, you would think it was the most crazy thing ever. Wouldn't you? I mean, from what I understand, again, never been pregnant, you know, your body is assaulted by hormones. It's making these chemical changes in you that make absolutely no sense. And it drives your everything in you, physically, mentally, emotionally, crazy. Time to stop. Time to stop. I know. I know. I mean, think about it. Everything, this is so bad. Everything swells. Morning sickness comes. And there's nausea. You wouldn't choose it. Unless you could see past it to the incredible moment of holding a child in your hands. It transforms it completely. That's what this is talking about. It's saying, look at the birth. Look at the celebration. Look at what's going to happen. So what is it? Well, what we're seeing is Jesus' coronation. When he is crowned. King of kings and Lord of lords. And it says very clearly that every knee will bow beneath him. Every person, every spirit, every creature will eventually bow to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And all the humiliation that Jesus Christ endured both on this earth and on the cross and, and all of the assaults against his name will be transformed into joy when it is recognized that he is king of kings. The scales of justice will be weighed and the truth will shine forth in perfect light. And every tongue will confess his praise. And I love the word confess because it means to say exactly the same thing as God says. This will not be a reluctant, yes, your Lord. It will be, yes, you are the rightful only Lord. You are the rightful only King. And I declare that with all of my being. Whether I've chosen to worship you or not, that is an undeniable truth. The coronation of Jesus Christ 
is the crown of God's creation and the completion of God's redemption. It is the most important event in all of history because truth is revealed. And here's the thing. Look at Romans chapter 8, verse 18. This is Paul's attitude. And this is why I'm telling you, this is what runs through his heart and his mind no matter what his circumstances. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. What this means is that the earth The scripture tells us in Genesis that there's a curse that's been placed upon the earth because of our sin, because of the rebellion of humanity, creation has been cursed. And yet creation is eagerly waiting for God's plan of redemption to be completed so that Jesus is revealed as King of kings and that those who are adopted into his family by faith are revealed as joint heirs. Creation, everything made, is waiting for this moment. It's anticipating it. It's eager for it. Creation is placed under a curse because of our sin, and yet it is eager to shout for joy. When Job went through a time of suffering and confusion because of the trials of his life and didn't understand what was going on, he eventually gets to a point where he's, he's crying out to God and God finally answers him and doesn't tell him why. Doesn't tell him why he was suffering. Instead, he reminds him of who he is and what he has done. And I want to read these verses and, and, and try to build this together as bricks into a picture of, uh, or a foundation of, of what God wants us to see. Job 38, verses 4 through 7. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? And who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. This is telling us that at creation, when God made things, the angels celebrated. But so did creation. There was a song that went forth that was unimaginable. I mean, we can't even begin to to see what it's like. He's saying that happened. But the celebration that's happening at the crowning of Jesus Christ is even bigger. It's not just the angels. It's everything he has made is going to join in the song. And, And it's absolutely incredible. When we look at the Psalms, we see a theme that runs through many of them. Many of the psalms are coronation songs. This means that they were songs written for the crowning, not of the king like David or Solomon, um, but for the crowning of God as king. And Psalm, psalm 98, 99, 100, those are some coronation songs. Psalm 2 is an incredible coronation song. But I want to read to you Psalm 98. 
Because I believe this is the picture revealed in the scripture of what is going to happen at this moment when every knee bows and every tongue confesses Jesus Christ is Lord. They had a rehearsal at creation. And the angels sang and, and part of creation sang, but it gets so much bigger. Sing to the Lord a new song. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to chase a rabbit for a second, so just hang with me. I love that verse. We have a great heritage of songs that we sing. But this song is going to be something never sung before. And the reason why is because it is written for a choir that is so much bigger than it has ever sung together in all of history. It has parts and instruments in it that never have been together. And I started thinking through some of our, some of our songs that we have in, in the church about Jesus' coronation. And there's some good songs. You know, All Hail the Power of Jesus' Name. That's a good song that talks, it's a hymn that talks about His power. Or Crown Him with Many Crowns. That's a good song too. But there's almost something missing to it. It's like, that's a good song and we want to sing that, but I don't know that that song says, shout for joy to me. It's like we need to start adding some of that into some of our great songs and making sure we're incorporating that joy into all that we do and seeing that. I was, I honestly, I was a little disappointed. I, I, I did a whole bunch of searching on songs about Jesus' coronation, and there's not a whole lot there, but there should be. It really should be. Okay, so it's a new song. For he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made his salvation known and revealed his righteousness to the nations so that every nation on earth is going to know who he is. He has remembered his love and his faithfulness to Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of God. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Burst into jubilant song with music. Make music to the Lord with the harp, with the harp and the sound of singing, with trumpets and the blast of the ram's horn. Shout for joy before the Lord, the King. And look who joins in. Look who's verse 2. Let the sea resound. Okay, I mean, imagine the crashing of the waves. But imagine that as an instrument a rhythm instrument that is providing incredible deep bass to the song of creation as it's shouting for joy about Jesus Christ. Let the sea resound and everything in it. I mean, think about it. We, we get amazed when we see the documentaries on, on television about the songs of the whales. Can you imagine this whole section of whales that are singing this song to Jesus Christ and they're doing it together in perfect harmony with everything else he's made. Thank you. It should be really cool, okay? I mean, earlier, you know, we were hesitant to roar like a lion. Let's get over it, okay? And let's celebrate. Oh, it gets better because here's more rhythm. Let the, river, let the rivers clap their hands. Imagine the sounds that we hear like in a waterfall or the water going over a rock. But that is woven by God, the great composer 
into a piece of music that resounds Jesus' name. Let the mountains sing for joy together, excuse me, sing together for joy. Let them sing before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. This is the part we we read about the judgment. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity. All of creation is going to join in this song. I I want to try to give you a mental picture here in just the last couple of minutes. And I want you to begin to to ask the Lord to help help me dream about what this will be like. Because this tells us all the nations are going to join in. This means that every tribe, every tongue is going to proclaim in their own heart language, Jesus is Lord. Every language you can imagine, your heart language, all the peoples who who have ever been born with that as their heart language are going to speak forth, Jesus is Lord, in their own tongue. All together, in this beautiful weaving of music, of shouting, of celebration. The Hebrews will proclaim Yeshua Adonai. The Czechs will proclaim Jesus Yepan. Those who speak Spanish, Jesus as Señor. The Germans, Jesus as Herr. The Indonesians, Puji, Jesus Tuhan. All of those things will be woven together proclaiming the greatness of God, but it's not just humanity. It is all of creation. The elephants will be trumpeting, Jesus is the Lord, and we will know what it means. The whales will be speaking. The the eagles will soar with their wings spread in exaltation and cry to the glory of God. This is my favorite. The gnus will be gnuing. I have no idea even where they came up with that name for an animal. But those, or what kind of sound a gnu makes. It, it's just such a cool name. I mean, three little letters, a gnu. I know some of you, if, if English isn't your heart language, you go, what's a gnu? It's like an antelope thing. <laughs> it's cool. It's part of God's creation. And it's going to make an amazing sound. But sounds we have never heard before will be blended with our own voices in a concert of praise, in perfect pitch, in perfect rhythm. The horses will be running because of the majesty of how God made them before the throne of God, allowing their magnificent beauty to bring praise to their God and King. The nectar of all of God's incredible flowers will scent the air with a rainbow of fragrances. The angels will herald the exaltation of Jesus. Beneath the throne of God, the martyrs will be proclaiming, He is Lord. Everything will come together in this ultimate expression of joy. Now here's the great part for you and I. We are not just spectators. We are not sitting in the stands. God has given us a different position at this celebration as joint heirs with Jesus Christ. That's why he gives us here an entrance into everlasting joy by saying, therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, working out what God has already worked in. For it is God who works in you 
to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like the stars in the sky. Remember back in Job, it said that the stars sang together at creation. I believe he's using that same imagery. That God, because of what he has done for us in inviting us into his family, gives us a place of honor at the crowning of Jesus Christ, not because we deserve it, but because he does. Because the celebration is about what he has done for us. And we get to shine, shine with all that we are for Jesus in celebration. But guess what? It's not just at that moment. The implication of the scripture is that when we actively work out what God is working in and allow him to complete his good purpose in us, which is redeeming and using us for humanity, just like we sang in the song, he's given the seed that has been given, we will sow. When, When we use our life for his honor and glory, it enables us to shine like the stars even now. It's a preview of the celebration that is to come. If we can ask the Lord to clear our vision, to take away the nearsightedness where we are so focused on this moment and pray that he will open our eyes to see this celebration, it will make the trials that you and I endure more than worth it. Because we will see that it ultimately all works together for his good, for his purpose, and to point all of creation to Jesus Christ. Father God, your word is amazing. But what is more amazing is your son. Lord, would you speak into our hearts the reality of who Jesus Christ is. Eyes of faith sometimes have cataracts. They're clouded by the circumstances around us. So Lord, would you clear our vision to see you for who you truly are and then to live in obedience and in joy based upon the reality of your greatness. So Lord, that when we sing about you in hymns and in songs and in spiritual songs, Lord, we're singing with our hearts focused in on this great celebration of you being proclaimed for who you truly are. Oh, Lord, would you inhabit our praises? Would you inhabit our lives? Or would you help us to focus in on what is to come and to live based upon that reality because it will change everything about us? Lord, have your way in us. Go before us, guard behind us, be all around us, we pray. 
In your great name, Jesus, amen.